we finished editing the bulk of the post-production process. And then about a month later, we got word of John Lewis's poor health, his cancer. That was stage four. And that was very moving because I thought, wow, this incredible man doesn't have much longer to live. And we had no idea. The public had no idea that his life was going to a close. But we worked on this film and have this story of his now to share with so many people. Here is this extremely relevant still man. And, and here's his story to honor that. That is the voice of Isara Krieger, director of photography, editor and documentary filmmaker. She joins me today to discuss the legacy of the late Democratic representative from the state of Georgia and the documentary film about his life, John Lewis, Good Trouble. You're listening to the podcast with John C. Lemon. Krieger, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. How did you become a documentarian and what leads you in the stories that you tell? I've been thinking recently about the fact that, you know, when you're kind of realizing what you're drawn to in the world or what you're good at doing, it doesn't feel like you can really identify, oh, I'm a storyteller. <laughs> to me, it just feels like, oh, I like observing people and I like communicating about people to make different circumstances understood by different people. I was always just kind of drawn to more creative outlets like writing and photography. Taking photos when I was younger was me on the path to becoming a storyteller, which it didn't feel like at the time. I felt like an observer and a documentarian, working kind of some some odd jobs, uh, magazines, and with photographers, which I love. I went, ended up going to journalism school, and that's where the, the kind of storyteller title <laughs> was affirmed, I suppose. And that's when I kind of realized what I had been doing <laughs> my whole life, trying to communicate the way I see the world uh, for the purpose of kind of better understanding. <laughs> An experience I talk about that kind of pushed me in this direction and the direction to be interested in kind of the broad social justice umbrella was when I transferred after sixth grade. I had been in a private elementary school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is where Harvard is. It's a wealthy community. And my parents, we lived in Boston, so they, they were ready to transfer me to a, a public middle to high school situation. And through that search, they realized Boston public schools were not the places that they wanted to send their daughter. They had poor graduation rates, poor test rates, all this stuff. So I ended up going to one of those. <laughs> A good, there are kind of two Boston public high schools that you test into. And so that switch, I, starting in seventh grade, I just still remember what it felt like to be completely 
have my worlds flipped upside down, go from one universe of private schools with carpets and kids getting dropped off in their SUVs and very white environment to a huge public school in downtown Boston where I took the public bus, city bus to school starting at age 12, diverse population in race and economic standing and just so many people and so much life. And I actually was really terrified (laughs) to, to switch schools when I was that age. But I just remember from the first day, I loved it. And I felt like I couldn't believe kind of what was going on. This felt to me like the real world. These kids were involved in Boston. They weren't getting kind of driven to this like quiet area to get an education. And it just felt more authentic to me, but more representative of like what I thought more people go through, more people's education experience. And then I kind of felt, I can't believe that I was sheltered from this. I can't believe how separate these worlds were, kind of the private education and the public in the city education. That, as you now maybe are putting together, has has fueled my work <laughs> about education and young people. But I, ever since then, I kind of, I was clued in at a young age to how varying people's experiences are, dependent on so many things. And that coupled with my kind of observant nature, like my love of photography and writing, kind of creative ways of seeing things, that those kind of grew together. And I took psychology and sociology in college and loved digging into the workings of people and um, just kind of felt like it's natural for me to to try to communicate about these differences that people experience in the world. (laughs) You spoke about a real world experience, a question that has been raised. If in a sheltered environment, to use the term that you used, did you feel like you were missing out on anything? Are we hurting the young Asarias of the world? Do you feel like you're better off without them? What would you say to that? I've been very grateful that I had that experience actually to switch out of that private school. And I feel like it put me on track to be a person that I appreciate more in the world. I do think, you know, when I was 12 and younger, I didn't know what I was missing. But after in high school and college, I did come to a little bit resent my old peers at the private school who who stayed in that environment and, as you say, go on to good colleges. I do feel like there's something lacking when you have just rifts between people, people's experiences. I think what we lose is the understanding and the compassion because if you if you don't know people who are going through a different experience than you. You you just can't have the same kind of compassion and empathy for the situation, even if you hear about it on the news. So I do think it's interesting to ask about the benefit of that person. I think as society, I think it's detrimental. I think for the person, that's interesting because <laughs> some people might want that ignorance. I think most people should have that the varied experience. I'm going to just list some of the names of the uh, shorts that you had a hand in. Young Oakland superheroes fight for their mural. 
which is a very interesting story of empowerment, even at the elementary school level. Those who attended Hoover Elementary in particular, that they could be change agents, which I thought was spectacular. And of course, there is Beacon High School students who are dreaming about bettering their lives through education and restorative justice at Oakland's Fremont High. Good Trouble, which we will get to. There's a through line to your storytelling. When you look back over these films, was a through line in mind or did it just kind of happen that way? I would say it just happened. I actually only talking to you, I kind of have been made aware of the through line. <laughs> to me, it's just what feels interesting to kind of share with the broader audience. I mean, and I'm realizing I from one of John Lewis's messages is this message of hope in the face of the greatest adversity. You know, hope keeps you going. Hope that things can change. And I actually am kind of realizing that is what's inspiring to me, sharing stories that are hopeful <laughs> and definitely can illuminate circumstances to other audiences that they might not otherwise be aware of. I feel like that's a mission for me. But you don't want to share just heartbreaking <laughs> stories. You want to share stories that inspire people and give them courage to kind of want to dig in and learn more and help anything change. When you see something that is not right, not fair, not just say something, do something, get into good trouble, good trouble, necessary trouble. That ends up being the title of a film, Good Trouble, where you had assistant editor responsibilities for putting that film together. Tell me about the making of Good Trouble. It was the director's concept because she met John Lewis while she was filming a Netflix series about John Kennedy, John F. Kennedy. My understanding is one of those stories where she met John Lewis and thought, oh my goodness, you know, initially this man needs a film. <laughs> His history is so rich. He's so charming. She got funders, the right people on board. And it was exciting because she's a New Yorker, New Jerseyer, but she was in San Francisco for about six years. So we were in a small studio in San Francisco. It was an all-woman team out here. There was one male producer in New York, but that was about it. It was very like welcoming and collaborative in that sense. For me, it was definitely the biggest film I've been around in terms of having funders and distributors from the beginning on board as executive producers and working with an editor and a story producer and associate producer. It was great to see the way all those positions worked together and kind of came up with. It was fun to watch the story bloom, I guess. With this story, it was, I guess it's noteworthy that there was this rich historic narrative we were trying to tell and then also trying to place in some current footage of Lewis and his life in Congress now. So that, from a documentary perspective, was fun to storyboard. And to... it's also interesting to, you know, the civil rights movement, some aspects of it are so known and popularized, or we've all seen MLK's certain speeches a million times. It's kind of a unique challenge as much as you don't want to admit it, but to kind of keep something that people have seen so much kind of 
add something new to the conversation. And visually, like the director had us search for archival footage that was not seen a million times before. So, you know, it's such an interesting experience making a documentary about someone because I never actually met John Lewis, but I've watched hours and hours of footage of him and worked on crafting a narrative to tell his story the best way we thought we could. So I felt very close to him. He was a moving person to be thinking about a lot. (laughs) Digging into his life, learning about his character, the experiences. Of course, we know about the march when he was a much younger man and he was hit on the back of his head. He tells a story that his knees buckled and he thought that he could die there on the bridge. Instantly, I think of courage. I think of his bravery. I think of his tenacity. Spending that time with him by reading about him, studying, watching film. I can only assume it affected you and changed you in some way. One thing that you're touching on that felt like a huge takeaway in terms of his character, I think is one of the few people (laughs) that I know of that actually cared so much about justice that he was willing to die for it. And I think people say that they understand what that means, but don't actually. There were accounts of him getting on some Freedom Ride buses when they were being attacked and blown up that he was not sure that he would come out alive. And that, I think people don't really... It's a lot to sit with that, (laughs) to sit with that courage of another person. That was very moving. And he also worked his entire life since being a teenager in in college to the end of his days. And that is another rare, rare thing, I think, for someone to be that dedicated to a mission. Those were kind of really powerful takeaways I took from his character. And of course, I felt inspired and moved. Someone like him, you almost, it almost makes you feel You have to fight the urge to feel kind of like guilty, like you haven't been (laughs) acting in this like invincible way, Um, but he would never want you to feel that way. (laughs) He would just want you to, to do what you can. I think certainly in the context of this past year also, when the film happened to be released, it was kind of eye opening to realize, you know, when you go into the mechanics of work he did in Congress, that people don't really, it's not flashy, it's not exciting, it's not getting beaten up. He did a lot of really important work legislatively, so that was that was a big takeaway too for me to kind of pay attention (laughs) to what is happening in the law because there's a lot of potential power there and there's a lot that goes wrong that people just don't know about. How do you think Lewis was able to reach across the aisle? You mentioned legislation. He had to persuade, he had to convince others to do what he saw to be the right thing. What quality in his character did he possess that helped him to be so successful in his legislative career? I thought about this a lot. He was willing to work with the other side. In alignment with his hope and kind of positivity and courage comes this, he wasn't an angry person. I mean, he had the, he was worked up and passionate and he had the certain amount of fuel that comes from some anger of being that motivated to make change, but he wasn't someone who got fed up and disgruntled and discouraged. He was willing to make certain sacrifices. Like there's one moment we, he was writing his speech when he was 
for the National Mall when he was the youngest speaker ever. He had to get his speech approved, and and the White House said, can you actually take out this chunk? It feels kind of insightful, (laughs) or not (laughs) inciting of violence, maybe kind of a little too strong. And he changed it. I think some other activists would not have changed that part. They would have said, this is what I want to say. And But Lewis was allowed to speak. There's kind of this give and take that he was a master of. Talk to me a little bit about the power of documentary filmmaking. Stories are essential to our existence, of course, and we learn a lot from stories. When I see a well-crafted fiction story versus a story that has happened, <laughs> I think that documentaries have a huge power to share stories that are real about people and to audiences who might not otherwise realize certain truths <laughs> about people that they haven't had experiences with. And of course, in this context, too, you can tell a historical story, you know, in an engaging way. I think that's interesting and powerful. It's kind of like the first rule you learn is don't insert yourself into the film. This is not an opinion piece. However, as soon as you get in the field, you knock down all the rules. You realize that it's impossible not to insert some of your beliefs into the creative work you're making. So it is always interesting to think about, even if we're telling a historical uh, story, you know, we pick John Lewis's lens to tell it through. What does that say about what we think about the world? And where do you start and stop the story? With documentary, I also find it so fascinating because it never ends. (laughs) It's real life. So you always have to decide where your story is going to end. John Lewis determined in his life at a very young age that he was going to be a change agent. He was going to be a force for positivity as much as he could. Maybe it's not apparent who he's handing the baton to right now. But I want to go back to a short film that you made that you are now extending and making into a feature length film that is called Beacon. In that film, you follow high school students. They like John Lewis. I can try to make a better life, not just for me, but also for my family. I know that's important to the students that are featured in Beacon. Tell me about Beacon and how you got involved in that project. Funny story, the director of Beacon was my drama teacher (laughs) at that private school I mentioned. (laughs) Um, So I knew he kind of left that education to start this alternative school, Beacon. So that's how I knew about it. I just thought it was this really interesting slice of time in which to investigate so many things. We have the opportunity to learn about where the students are coming from, the schools that they went to elementary school for, and how underserved those schools are, underfunded. The students who come into Beacon after eighth grade, they test around fourth or fifth grade just in reading and math ability. That is a situation of public education in urban parts of Boston. So we have an opportunity to highlight that. Then We have an opportunity to highlight the world in which these students are planning to shift towards, which is the world of extreme wealth and privilege, New England preparatory boarding high schools. So I just felt like it was opportunity to highlight this expanse, again, kind of 
other opposite ends of the spectrum of what education can look like. And from there, conversations can start about why are some schools better than others? Why do some students get given so much more avenue help towards success and other students seemingly are left behind? It's a very unique institution. It only takes about 30 students at a time, even less. So filming there was just really, really fun. I got and kids at that age are like after eighth grade, like 14, really open and engaging and fun to work with and willing to talk about themselves. One of the students was very open when she said, I'm not so much concerned about the academics. I think I can handle that. What really concerns me is the social piece. How difficult did it appear to you from behind the lens that that transition was? It appeared to be very difficult. And that's where some ethical questions or criticism arises in terms of Beacon. Their methods, because they have an undeniable mission to push certain students towards an arguably better education. However, they want to close the education gap. But the method for doing it, it's very, very nuanced, very interesting. There's so many positives and negatives. It's so dense, you can't address everything altogether. You can argue that the students are young enough to kind of follow direction at this point. Yes, they know that they like aspects of school and want what they're being told they can have. It's very interesting. You know, it's just a very small handful of students at a time that begin. I actually happened to catch up with Malia, the student who said that recently. She absolutely loved her school. And she said it was actually easier for her to adjust than she expected. And she said she made friends who are like the best people she's ever met. So really happy for her. She actually got into Brown. So congratulations. Yeah. She's feeling good. She was running like three clubs and involved in so much at school. Something that the Beacon administrators talked about that I found interesting is that it's very easy. People can kind of talk about, I think these schools are getting better at talking about race and diversity or lack of diversity on campus. What is interesting is that people talk less about socioeconomic class. There was actually a quote from a white student who went to Beacon, and she said that even though I look like most of the students at this private school, I don't fit in because of her financial situation. What I'm trying to get at is that I do feel like Beacon illuminates an interesting aspect in that kind of, it's not just race, but it's race and class that adds to this the difficulty in fitting in. So you're going to go back in the spring and you're going to catch up with some of the students. When did you first start shooting Beacon? How long ago was this? It was 2016. So four years ago. So they've gone through high school now. (laughs) The Don Porter directed Good Trouble review from Indie Wire reads, Good Trouble chronicles the realization that John Lewis will not be around forever. Lewis is a living testament to staying in the battle as long as it rages on. Good Trouble makes a welcome case for keeping hope alive. Thank you for being a part of and sharing such engaging stories. We look forward to the feature-length release of Beacon as well. Ms. Krieger, thank you for joining me for today's conversation. 
Thanks for having me. Isara Krieger, Director of Photography, Editor, and Documentary Filmmaker. John Lewis, Good Trouble, a Magnolia Films distribution, is now available on Amazon Prime Video, HBO Max, and various streaming platforms. For additional information on Isara Krieger projects, visit isarakrieger.com. That's our podcast for today. I'm John C. Lemon. Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time. Thank you.